Hello and welcome back to another special research radio program that focuses on Dr. B R Ambedkar and his mission of achieving liberty, equality and fraternity. I'm Abhishek and in this week's episode we'll focus on the implications of studying Ambedkar's texts in an Indian public university, the multiple forms of violence that caste thrives on and the cultural ways in which the caste order is contested. My guest today is Parthasarathy Muthukurupan who teaches in the Department of Cultural Studies at the English and Foreign Languages University IFLU in Hyderabad. Dr. Muthukurupan's research interests include cultural theory, literature, cinema, visual culture and continental philosophy. We'll discuss his article titled Paramakuri Violence Against Dalits Against Politics published in EPW as well as two other articles he's published elsewhere. I've shared links to all three in the show notes and I do recommend reading them. Thank you for joining us Partha it's great to have you on the show. Hi Abhishek thank you very much uh, for this opportunity and I'm very glad to be here. Yes likewise. Uh, so if we can start by discussing your course uh, titled Introduction to Ambedkar uh, that you teach at the masters level you know what does a student's first day in the classroom look like? Uh, for me teaching Ambedkar is an academic activity but I think it also bears certain historical and subjective uh, attachments. I see this as a part of larger democratic uh, practice. I think it is primarily a question about putting Ambedkar in the public uh, in in the sense of presenting his ideas uh, in a public university. It needs to be thought uh, in association with placing his image or idol in public place. And if you think in in those terms, it has its own historicity and politics. I also think this particular kind of practice has undergone a whole lot of change in the 30 35 years that is putting ambedkar in the public when i grew up in the 80s and 90s in southern parts of tamil nadu ambedkar statues were established and defended by very ordinary people with the exemplary courage and militancy at times it was a legal battle against the whole state machinery there were stories of bitter street fights behind most of the ambedkar statues which are put up in the public on the streets If you think about the images of Ambedkar, putting up the images in the public, uh, one may find the mainstream cinematic representations of Ambedkar. Often you will find this official cliche image at the police stations and the courtrooms. You will find it on the in cinematic representation. Uh, very often, uh, along with Gandhi and Nehru, in, a, in at once there is an invocation of uh, both law as well as uh, the nationality in this particular official representation of Ambedkar. You also know that there is a history of political images of Ambedkar being presented in the public as a democratic emblem. This this is a circulation among the very ordinary people of this country uh, through the modes of wall posters, calendars, stickers on tubulars and uh, cars, marriage invitation cards and framed photographs in the entrances of small houses. Uh, today you also find the whole lot of flexi banners carrying Ambedkar's images. there has been a whole history of putting up ambedkar putting ambedkar in the public and it was not a easy one perhaps this putting ambedkar's ideas in a public university uh, cannot be divorced from this the whole history uh, today if you think there is a gesture of relative acceptance of ambedkar among the general public more so in the case of university campuses ambedkar is not received with animosity as much as how the case used to be i would even think that ambedkar has become a symbol of democratic protests in contemporary india as you see the comp- complaints today is not the lack of uh, representation in the public but the excess of representation often articulated as 
appropriation of Ambedkar. The same holds for academic and intellectual world of writing, publishing and teaching. Teaching Ambedkar in the university is also, in my case, made much easier by my senior colleagues in the department. Though I grew up in the family that had books of Marx, Periyar and Ambedkar, it is at EFL University, as a student I had learned the political significance of Ambedkar's ideas. Department of Culture Studies where I teach, uh, it has got a very good faculty. It has a genuine engagement with questions of caste and increasingly young people want to read Ambedkar. Uh, we in the department offer not only exclusive courses on Ambedkar, many courses in, indeed have readings drawn from Ambedkar's works uh, at master's and PhD level. I think what makes distinct our teaching uh, Ambedkar is the way courses have been curated where Ambedkar is read along with the questions of culture, representation, subjectivity and so on. Right, right, right. And would you like to share what uh, you know uh, a day in the uh, for a day in the in a classroom might look like? There has been a overwhelming reception and enthusiasm uh, in reading uh, Ambedkar, especially among the young people, and they show unprecedented kind of uh, enthusiasm in the classrooms. Uh, they are excited to read Ambedkar, uh, both his ideas as well as texts talking about his uh, life. The, the kind of life which parallels with uh, the modern Indian history. Okay, okay. Yeah, and um, to transition to the uh, actual research that you've conducted, um, in one of your articles, you've written that, quote, societies have been exhausted in certain parts of the country by the fieldworks of social anthropologists. Political scientists since the 1960s have identified caste as a vital category to analyze national elections and study the voting behaviors of what they have called vote banks, end quote. So could you tell me more about uh, social scientists, have, how social scientists have, you know, broadly made sense of the term caste itself um, and perhaps, uh, you know, one or two limitations that you identify with this uh, uh, broader scholarship so far? Uh, perhaps I should uh, start with Ambedkar's injunction from his modernist text, Annihilation of Caste. Uh, I think this is also circulated as a quote across internet and social media. Uh, this is, I quote, You cannot build anything on the foundations of caste. You cannot build up a nation. You cannot build up a morality. Anything that you will build on the foundations of caste will crack and will never be a whole. These are the lines from Annihilation of Caste. Ambedkar spoke these words in the context of 20th century, early 20th century uh, historical context. And it was a plea for the dialectical understanding of political and social reform. The implied meaning here is that caste is an evil force that ought to be annihilated. I think a genuine social scientific research, social science research on caste shall begin from the premise, with this particular premise, with the patient for the social transformation. That's what I think. If you look at the scene, scene social science scene in India, caste as an object of analysis has found a place largely in social sciences and there is a, you can see, conspicuous absence of caste in the debates around history and historiography. That is to say that uh, caste as a specific research object has been allocated a specific uh, disciplinary space. It doesn't appear in the uh, disciplinary space of history, but rather it appears in social anthropology. So there is a distribution of certain kind of a uh, intellectual labor. 
So perhaps the exception here would be the newly emerging field of health studies. There is a focused thinking on historiography and caste. In a sense, one can say that caste has become an anthropological object. It has become a, I mean, it's only the anthropologists who are largely engaged with the questions of caste. Perhaps I would also say that they have failed to pay attention to the embedded violence in the caste relationship, the evil part which Ambedkar uh, kind of uh, insists that ought to be annihilated, and on the subjugation of the people uh, at the receiving end. This particular part is somehow was not a concern for social scientists. Uh, they end up producing depoliticized, cold analysis uh, that is common to the much of the social science literature on caste. If you look at the prominent political theoreticians, the ones who work at the level of theory and history, one finds repeated justification, theoretical defense of caste uh, by presenting caste as a certain governing rationality of a kind uh, distinct from the Western societies. So this is a one type of uh, uh, writing. There are also political scientists and also journalists who look at uh, data of electoral democracy, party system, elections, and they continue to imply that caste as a productive force that challenges communalism and uh, a kind of agent that can restore a democracy, etc. So coming back to the anthropological works on caste, I can give you a single, uh, small example. There has been a debate within the anthropology. Almost every anthropologist engaged with this debate. This is about the structure of caste system uh, uh, to st- uh, understand who is at the top of the system, whether it is the, the satriya, who, who is the king, political power, also po- political power, or the brahmin who has the ritual superiority uh, over others. So, so much so that uh, a scholar has called this as a central conundrum of Indian sociology, social ideology. So the fact of the matter, our concern is to ask whatever the case, whether it is a Brahmin or Satriya who is the, on the top of the model. The question is to uh, ask who, who are the people most vulnerable in the structure and who are at the receiving ends? Who are the, who are the subjugated populations exposed to uh, brutal forms of violence on an everyday basis? This is the kind of question a social science inquiry should begin from the premise, right? So the social science, uh, objective science, uh, uh, with their frames, somehow uh, do not address these questions. And uh, this becomes a serious problem, especially when you want to understand caste as a kind of a kind of violence, which involves questions of suffering, humiliation, trauma, and pain. And there is, a, there is no subjective space for subjective narrative uh, in the social science literature. And that's why there is a scope in the literary narratives to address some of these questions. Finally, the social science studies also somehow impose a view that caste can exist as merely cultural. I would call this kind of uh, multi-casteism or caste pluralism, a peaceful coexistence of different castes to other. It's a kind of depoliticized understanding about caste, this has to be confronted with Ambedkar's structuralist dictum. The outcast is a byproduct of caste system. There will be outcasts as long as there are castes. So th- this is the kind of you know idea we have to confront this model of peaceful coexistence of castes, cultural difference, etc. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah i never thought of this uh, multicultural multicaste uh, perspective like oh all the castes can just exist and you know there's no violence associated with uh, the caste system so that was quite um insightful um besides uh, the other examples of the of the problems and lack of urgency with uh, social sciences on the on on addressing um the caste hierarchies the caste order um so i wanted to uh, also discuss the kinds of words that are used um and the and the importance of it uh, because this is a topic that you explore quite deeply in in your uh, research um and we've we noticed these these uh, discussions take place in popular media where there are pressures uh, that affect the uh, the choice of words that are used to oppress uh, that that are used to describe the oppressed castes in south asia uh, right from the modi government's decision to media houses to discontinue the use of the term dalit in 2018 to criticism against gandhi's use of the word harijan um, as a paternalistic framing of a structure governed by violence by caste hindus um, so if you can maybe give us a snapshot of three words and the pressures that the terms uh, are faced uh, you know dalits harijans and scheduled castes as you know uh, naming is a conspicuous ideological act and to name something is to assign uh, or allocate uh, a place in the horizon of social and historical order if you look at uh, some of the categories uh, used to refer to dalits in the post independence india the names there are certain names that continue to be used for the from the colonial period uh, for instance scheduled caste and harijan these are the uh, the first one is a more of a governmental category and the second one is more of a, a ideological uh, one associated with gandhi and congress party to begin with the category sc scheduled caste uh, it it was a constitutional category created to kind of uh, in the production of subjects for the state welfare so it is you know drawn from the 1936 schedule for the purpose of implementing special electoral representations in the government of india act so later the schedule uh, was also reproduced in 1950s uh, president's order etc the interesting thing about uh, this category is that since 1950 so th- there is a uh, binding on this category that uh, particularly after the president's order the official records of indian state continue to describe untouchables i mean the scheduled castes as hindus so it means as long as you remain within the hindu fold you are entitled to the welfare which is meant for the scheduled castes there are quite a different stories about you know the the sikhs and the buddhists uh, there are a uh, different story so this basically is a category uh, which has been uh, thought in terms of governmentality policy and welfare state etc so it has its own uh, stigma people have written about it if you think about harijan another category it's a kind of popularized in the 1930s uh, in the nationalist politics by gandhi and his engagement with the questions of untouchability so gandhi had a dual purpose in engaging with untouchables on the one hand it was to uh, bring the populations of untouchables into the uh, national politics and the other hand it is also to retain them within the lower ranks of hindu majority society so it is understood that gandhi borrowed this term from narsin mehta a, a kind of figure in the uh, 15th century gujarati bhakti tradition the term was used to kind of uh, to refer to the devotees across caste and creed there was a sense of universalism so gandhi by using it exclusively to refer to untouchables uh he actually resignified the term uh and kind of uh 
kind of deconstructed the universal nature of the term. So it's no longer a term refers to people across castes and creeds, which the Bhakti would have thought about. But here it is exclusively a reference to untouchables. So perhaps this is the uh, kind of uh, act. It faces a kind of polemic from someone like uh, Mayavadi, which was largely reported in the newspapers, asking that if we are the children of God, uh, is he the child of Satan? This was reported in the newspapers as Mayavadi polemically stated. So th- this is a category which is l- largely located within the uh, particular ideology of uh, reform, uh, kind of initiated by Gandhi, which has which puts the Hindus uh, in the burden of emancipating the origin as a penance for their sins, etc. It's a particular kind of idealism which never captures the the structural dimensions of caste and its uh, operation in the society. When it comes to Dalit, the term uh, can be located uh, in the Ambedkar's hermeneutic. In his historical dialect, one can locate the uh, term. And also in the the revolutionary enunciations of Dalit Panthers of Maharashtra. So it has its own uh, history, a political history, I would say. Somehow I feel today that the term Dalit and its exclusive usage for untouchables often uh, seen synonymous with scheduled costs. I think the term has been st- stigmatized as much as the other terms. And also it is uh, stripped off of its political potentialities. So it is high time to ask subjectivities are if subjectivities are constituted through uh, discourses and languages. What is the language that Dalit speak? This is a question one has to think about it. On the other hand, Dalit, the, the, the term also has uh, dissented from, I mean, it was a revolutionary category in the Panthers' uh, imagination. It's a universal category. Yes, yes. I, I just wanted to clarify this uh, using an excerpt from his one of his articles uh, where he says, quote, having the critique of majoritarian Hindu religion central to its politics, Dalit Panthers included scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, neo-Buddhists who were untouchables that converted to Buddhism during and after Ambedkar's historical public act of converting to Buddhism in 1956, the working class, landless poor, peasants and women as part of the collective called Dalit. Yes, please go ahead. It has descended from the a category of becoming to a category of being. However, for the practical purposes, uh, it serves as a referential category uh, in the media houses and also in the academia. So I, I think uh, it is also uh, a kind of challenge to the, the way one imagines any new category uh, transgressing and overcoming cost and, and the challenges to that kind of a imagination. I think this imagination of uh, non-caste identity uh, has also uh, has implications from the larger questions of the unsettled nature of Indian national identity and contestations mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to elaborate? Is it possible for you to elaborate on the what you sp- spoke about the becoming versus the beings? Uh, I found that quite uh, in, in, like uh, imp- insightful. Uh, when you think about Dalit as a becoming. A kind of a subject position. So you are not a Dalit by birth. You you become a Dalit. You kind of a transgressing the given identity and and occupy that space 
you know kind of you know it's a kind of it's not a easy uh, easy move that uh, kind of like a snake removing its uh, skin off it's a kind of a historical uh, kind of a struggle and uh, one has to overcome a lot of difficulties and occupy that place of the category of begaming it is also open to any community anybody can become a dalit there are levels of different levels of difficulties different levels of privileges uh, which are operative nevertheless the possibilities are open there is a hope for the transforming the caste identity and occupying an identity which is not necessarily constituted by caste but something else that opportunity is possible when you think about dalit as a category of bigamy but when you reduce the category uh, into category of being being what you are how you are born is a kind of sociological category you know not as a transformative historical category but sociological category you stigmatize this category and reduce into a kind of you know identity of given identity so that's what happens with equating you know dalit with either biological identity or or governmental identity so there is no imagination here so i feel uh, how it was an identity of becoming at once with the revolutionary imaginations of panthers now it has descended into uh, a kind of idea, uh, identity of being so it's it's also kind of stigmatized kind of identity yeah and uh, transitioning to you know speaking about the way that some of your other work that where you've looked at uh, violence in in not just the visible forms but also at the structural and symbolic levels um so dr ambedkar as you paraphrase uh, believe that quote the formation of the entity called untouchable was animated not by love among the constituencies of the four varnas but through their shared hatred towards the untouchables end quote so uh, could you tell us more about uh, your research on violence based on these three layers uh, that you identify what you refer to in that essay is a response to a particular way of framing uh, the question about untouchability as a intersubjective relation between dalit and brahmin so my point in that essay is about limitations of such a framing where uh, the larger questions of uh, structural and symbolic violence which is operative behind the this particular dalit brahmin relationship as a uh, you know invisible background or if you want to put it uh, as uh, the conditions which make the possibility of this inequal uh, interaction between a dalit and a brahmin so this this was the point which i was trying to make and this particular invisible background i suggested drawing from ambedkar uh, is is operative with the the kind of ideological separation of touchable and untouchable with uh, what ambedkar calls it as a graded sovereignties and graded inequalities there are layers of castes uh, within the world of touchables and the relationship between the touchable and the untouchable uh, is in a way governed by the symbolic order of caste which is what he calls it as a shared hatred for the untouchable so that touchables share a common hatred for the untouchable so th- this is this basically to pay attention to the invisible background within which one has to think about a relationship like dalit and brahmin also to say that uh, when you don't pay attention to this background uh, you miss this uh, structural and symbolic violence which is operative uh, when it comes to my own uh, work on violence Uh, my primary work explores caste violence as a historical problem in modern india uh, usually uh, we seek to understand caste violence taking uh, resort to you know television newspaper report 
ഫാക്ട് ഫൈൻഡിങ് റിപ്പോർട്ട്സ് സിവിൽ ആൻഡ് ഹ്യൂമൻ റൈറ്റ്സ് ഓർഗനൈസേഷൻസ് ആൻഡ് ദയറിനു ഫാക്ട് ഫൈൻഡിങ് റിപ്പോർട്ട്സ് ആൻഡ് ആൾസോ യു ഫൈൻഡ് ഗവൺമെന്റ് സ്റ്റാറ്റിസ്റ്റിക്സ് ഓൺ കാസ്റ്റ് ബേസ് ക്രൈംസ് ആൾ ഓഫ് ദം ഫോളോ മോർ ഓർ ദ സെയിം ജാൻഡർ ഓഫ് കൺവെൻഷൻ ജാൻഡർ കൺവെൻഷൻ വിച്ച് ഇസ് എംപറികൽ ഇൻ നേച്ചർ ആൻഡ് ദേ ആൾസോ കൈൻഡ് ഓഫ് ഗോ വിത്ത് ദ സെയിം ലോജിക് ദാറ്റ് ദിസ് ഇസ് എ വയലേഷൻ ഓഫ് ഹ്യൂമൻ റൈറ്റ്സ് ദ ഓൺലി ഐ തിങ്ക് ഓൺലി ആർക്കൈവ് ഓഫ് knowledge which gives a different view on caste violence for me uh, is uh, the literary production of the past 5 decades it gives, it gives a different peak at the everyday horrors of caste violence secondly caste violence is generally understood to be a problem exclusively to india or hindu religion often the solutions are sought either in a legal or religious reform at times caste is framed as a violence of human rights as i told you earlier my work actually demonstrates how caste violence works in different forms such as symbolic systemic and also brutal or everyday forms and how all these three forms are mutually reproduce and complement each other so in a way uh, it's an attempt to theoretically understand caste violence in a in a in a, in a with the premise of uh, transformatory ethics of annihilation of caste uh, which was insisted by baba saheb ambedkar so in a, in a way it's also exploring the conditions of possibility for a uh, annihilation of caste so so in in that sense uh, my work goes against the general stands of thinking about caste and presents it as a is a kind of not uh, purely in terms of a structuralist understanding of caste but rather uh, also as a, a historical problem of modern india so it cannot be reduced to a, a problem of a legal mechanism or a social uh, mechanism which can be addressed through some kind of a reform so in my own framing caste violence it is something to do with a form of nation state and the kind of liberal democracy we live in so my work also establishes a kind of argues for a necessary theoretical turn against existing empiricism around caste violence so all the literature about caste violence produces a kind of a empirical object of caste violence so my work is also kind of uh, overcoming that uh, empirical object and to attempt to produce caste violence as a theoretical and historical problem right and uh, is there anything that you'd like to say about uh, more about like liberal democracy that you have started talking about the works on indian democracy in india never address the question of caste violence somehow it is possible for political theoreticians in india to elaborate on the political form of indian democracy without paying any attention to the structural forms of caste violence which is embedded in this society so on the other hand there is a innumerable number of studies Uh, focusing on caste violence trying to understand caste violence within the uh, specific uh, sociological village and other contexts and produce certain kind of a case studies kind of a closer studies they do not speak to uh, the questions around the political form of this country so my work in a way is about a kind of thinking about caste violence not as a kind of problem of a specific village or a specific sociological context rather as a problem that is to do with the modern political form we have and how caste violence as a modern form it is kind of established certain kind of nexus with the political form this is the kind of questions why i try to explore by asking larger theoretical questions when one thinks about caste violence in a way also to kind of uh, liberate caste violence from the clutches of uh, empiricism and sociological kind of uh, case studies
yeah um and focusing in on the uh, aspect about symbolic uh, violence uh, just to get you know deeper into uh, this uh, you've mentioned in your article that uh, quote if the symbolic order is structured to assign a subordinate position to the untouchable dalit articulations expose this nature of the symbolic the untouchables do not necessarily share the symbolic world with the oppressors right for me the symbolic world of caste uh, is a, it has overt and implicit prescriptions uh, it may include how one should carry oneself in the public or private uh, with whom one should eat with or share a cup of tea with whom should one marry whom should one interact with and how should one interact with or whom should one go around with uh, the list can be exhaustive the symbolic world is structured by the modalities of uh, graded sovereignties and inequalities so it also has a rule of difference in a sense uh, it is not a single rule for Uh, everyone to follow the rule is uh, different for different uh, graded levels so it is operative in that kind of a uh, level so this this particular symbolic uh, force uh, in many ways shapes uh, the habits of individuals and groups you know how you respond to certain questions certain situations etc and this symbolic order seeks obedience and fidelity from the individual subjects this is how caste works in a society so this is the process by which uh, the individual dispositions of people's beliefs and values and practices all that is shaped in our in a society and this is not done in a conscious uh, inculcation of values so this is done in a way that uh, at the level of unconscious it means uh, you don't know what you have learned today so that's how that you know that uh, uh, even the children practice you know they know about Uh, the, the inferiority of untouchables, the upper caste children. So it is not that they have been taught, sit and uh, you know educated. Okay, this is a kind of long durational formation of values and opinions uh, taking place at a discursive uh, level of uh, consciousness. This is a symbolic world, uh, kind of operative, like you know a kind of ideological state apparatuses, which Althusser calls it. Similarly, this is uh, ideological apparatuses of caste, which governs. everyday conducts of people and minds and their bodies so if this is the symbolic world so do the marginal groups obey and be faithful to the symbolic order this is the question so th- this question needs to be a uh, kind of uh, interrogated so i suggest uh, by a kind of invoking ambedkar's invocation of uh, thucydides to state that the untouchable articulations of everyday life brings some kind of rupture to this symbolic whole so the subordinate groups through their acts of disobedience and they clearly threaten the symbolic order of caste i would also think whenever there is an act of physical violence of caste today it is symptomatic of the crisis of the symbolic order right if you want to give an example you see that you know, there are stories in newspaper reports about upper caste people raising walls concrete walls blocking dalits from entering their street entering their temple area etc so it is clearly a symptomatic of Uh, the crisis of the symbolic order of caste the untouchables of that particular region no longer abide by the symbolic order of caste symbolic values and prescriptions they keep transgressing it so caste has to be guarded with a uh, erupting physical war right so this is in that sense ambedkar's uh, invocation uh, gives primacy to the issue of a uh, class interest within the society and also a kind of challenge to the foundational myth of the caste society as everybody is faithful to this symbolic order and society so this is the foundational myth 
This is what precisely gets ruptured in the small acts of disobedience of the subaltern groups. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's also um, I think nicely flowing to the um, you know the last question that I had in mind, which is about something that you hinted at early in the conversation, which is about uh, the poetry, the cultural production of the poetry and autobiography. Um, so you know, specifically since your research interest is also as a scholar of uh, cultural studies, um, if you can take walk us through maybe one or two examples of authors that you know have used a poetry and autobiography and have challenged uh, the the caste order to and and you know moved us closer to the goal of uh, annihilating caste. Teaching in the Department of Cultural Studies, I have realized uh, it's very important to reconstruct Ambedkar's theory of hermeneutics. Uh, this necessarily involves Ambedkar's conception of language, discourse, ideology. There is a whole lot of things one can actually put together from Ambedkar to make a Ambedkar's theory of hermeneutics. I can give one quick example and elaborate the point. As many uh, popularly understand annihilation of caste, it is I mean, I wouldn't say it's a misunderstanding, but there is a popular understanding that Ambedkar has proposed uh, intercaste marriages and interdining as a kind of solution to the problem of caste. Many people believe that. Many read Annihilation of Caste at that level. I wouldn't agree with that kind of a reading. Let us look at uh, this small passage in Ambedkar where he says, quote, Caste is not a physical object like a wall of bricks or a line of barbed wire, which prevents the Hindus from co-mingling and which is therefore to be pulled down. Caste is a notion, it's a state of mind. The destruction of caste does not therefore mean the destruction of physical barrier. This passage, I think, I think uh, people can find this passage in Annihilation of Caste. For me, the interesting part of Ambedkar's, this particular passage and its argument is that, uh, I mean, he located the question of Annihilation of Caste at the very contestation of contested, contested terrain of uh, ideological and discursive register. Caste is not a matter of you know palpable objects. It has to be located at the level of uh, discourse, at the level of ideology. So caste is not a tangible object. You know, it's it's constituted by mentalities, beliefs, values, and mediated by ideological function of sastras. So this is what the legitimacy of sastras need to be undermined. This is the overall point of annihilation of caste. And needless to say that Ambedkar is not denying the materiality of caste as it works in the real life conditions. The point here is about the discursive sites themselves are material. Indeed, caste is produced and reproduced and you know, new conditions for the existence of caste are produced at the level of discourse, right? So th- this also something to do with what I have called the symbolic world of caste. So I- in a sense, Ambedkar's uh, utopia of uh, annihilation of caste, utopian project of annihilation of caste, it is not something that uh, a kind of imagination where there is no ideological regime. So today there is a caste, ideological regime of caste is governed by Sastras. It has its own symbolic world. Whereas the one, one which envisioned by Ambedkar also has set up beliefs and practices. And that's what has to replace the existing one. That's where Ambedkar's idea of liberty, equality, fraternity, and all that values of dignity and self-respect come into place, right? So, so this, this is, in, as, a, as a practitioner of cultural studies, Ambedkar's locating this question of annihilation of caste as a, as a question of uh, signification and at the level of uh, signifiers and meanings and largely at the level of discourse is quite uh, interesting. And to to quote uh, one of the founding figures of culture studies, Stuart Hall, and this is precisely the hope uh, one finds in Ambedkar, that uh, Stuart Hall would say that, uh, you know, the meanings, the realm of meanings 
and discourse are not settled forever the possibilities are open for a resignification of identities names meanings etc that's where the hope for annihilation of caste lies so that's what i would think Right, right i think that's a nice segue to our uh, rapid fire round uh, which is the last stage of this conversation um, and i'd like to start with the first question which is what's one aspect of dr ambedkar's writing and actions that you'd like to learn more about uh, one of the curious questions uh, which as i ask try to explore whenever i read ambedkar is ambedkar's intervention into the then existing marxist philosophy so ambedkar is intervening into the uh, marxist philosophy and engaging with basic tenets of marxism at a point when there is no althusser there is no gramsci and the base and superstructural dialectic uh, the old dialect old model was intact and within india the whole lot of conservatives occupy the place of marxism and marxist practice and this also has something to do with uh, my own interest in thinking about ambedkar beyond the frames of liberalism and beyond the frames of gandhism what's uh, something that you're skeptical in dr ambedkar's work one problem which uh, i think is a productive problem which i keep uh, finding it difficult is ambedkar's thinking about the non caste possible identities populations can occupy right so there is a whole lot of uh, diagnosis about caste question and how we understand the society etc uh, but when it comes to transforming i mean identities are Uh, quite important for any individual and for societies i think there is a lack productive lack in ambedkar which is to think about the the, the identity to identity that fourth comes after caste what is the subject that one has to occupy in a post caste societies right that is the thinking uh, which is not readily available in ambedkar one has to critically engage with ambedkar and make a way forward from ambedkar i think so in that sense i think when many people uh, frame this problem uh, you know uh, in a very uh, reductionist fashion to think about uh, ambedkar then add up marx then add up buddhism so i would actually think in a very different way uh, to think that there is a philosophy of ambedkar which one finds it you know not addressing these questions directly but there is also possibility of ambedkarism the whole set of uh, scholars who work critically engage with ambedkar and expand critically reformulate ambedkar's ideas and at times critique ambedkar's ideas and reject there's a whole lot of intellectual vibrant intellectual activity which one can call it as a field of ambedkarism so it is the ambedkarism and the ambedkar philosophy of ambedkar together mm. can make a way forward right that's what i think uh, and a related question is um, the last one is what recommendation would you have to further and unify fragmented social movements i think it's a very difficult uh, and also practical uh, question and perhaps what needs to be thought uh, is what is the source of the fragmentation for instance when you say dalit uh, politics today as far as i know there is no single social movement today which is quite contented with identifying this movement as a simply as dalit movement there is beyond this identity of dalit there is always a search for a new identity whether it can be from Uh, language based identity or sometimes identity which is drawn from religion and if you look at some of ambedkar's works itself that religious identity becomes very significant and inevitable in thinking about a transformative new society so in, in a way that having an identity of a kind of 
a residual identity in a sense that identity which is not based on caste an identity which is defined in terms of it its negative relation with caste is not adequate so there is always there is a search for new identity uh, perhaps so this fragmentations what one thinks which kind of ruptures the unity of social movements maybe to our to, to our surprise could be a productive kind of a fragment which would actually enable us to further think about ways in which uh, we can imagine new identities uh, which would actually undermine the caste identity and uh, and and kind of forge a new society uh, where the identities of caste are less significant and the new identities based on new logics will have a more more relevance and more currency so that's what yeah, i can say yeah yeah, right. yeah. Uh, and on that uh, note uh, i'd like to thank you uh, so much uh, for joining us on research radio i think it was uh, an exhaustive and um, very uh, um, like you know um, a challenging way of understanding violence that you know we'll we'll try to spend some time trying to really get to the depth of and i think your articles will also help us uh, uh, get to that stage as well um, so thank you so i'm glad that i'm i've been part of this uh, epw podcast Thank you so much for our team and you and it's been a great pleasure nice experience I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with Dr Parthasarathy Muthukurupan and consider exploring his articles for more insights We'll be back with a new episode on Wednesday as a part of our new program that explores multiple dimensions of Dr Ambedkar's thought and practice one week after another Take care and until next week